Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. Hey, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Luke, and I get to serve as one of the ministers here at Plainfield Christian Church. I'm back on September 21st of 1956. There was an American test pilot by the name of Thomas Attridge who was flying his fighter jet. It was an F-11 Tiger, and he was flying at 20,000 feet when he started to dive. He reached about 13,000 feet of altitude, and when he did, he test fired the 20 millimeter cannon on his aircraft and then he went into an even steeper dive kicked on the afterburners to increase his speed and after doing that for about a minute he'd reached an altitude of around 7,000 feet when all of a sudden something happened his plane started to rattle his windshield buckled and he realized that he'd been hit now he wasn't in active combat didn't know what was going on figured maybe it was a bird strike all he knew is he was quickly losing power and he was not going to be able to make it back to the airfield. About the time he realized that, the plane made this horrible grinding noise, he would later say, and he lost all engine power completely, and he was forced to crash land his jet. Now, uh, the wreckage immediately caught fire. Thankfully, Thomas Attridge was able to escape with just a few broken bones. And after the accident, they had this investigation to figure out what in the world happened, and they found out that actually... It was not a bird strike like the pilot had thought it might be, but that actually his jet had been hit by three 20-millimeter bullets. You guessed it. They were his own bullets. Thomas Attridge had shot himself down. Here's how that happened. He test-fired his gun, remember, and then he kicked on the afterburners. He began to fly faster than his own ammunition, and he dove down finally to the point when the bullets that he had fired, his own ammo, caught up with him. Now, can I preach that for just a second? Would that be okay? All right. I mean, when I look around and I just see the pace at which the world is living, and I'm not even just talking about other people today, I'm talking about myself. When I look at my own calendar and my own life, man, a whole lot of us are flying faster than our bullets, and we can only do that for so long before our souls take the hit. Let's talk about time today. Does that sound all right? Like Kyle said, we've been in this series together called You Are Not Your Own. And every week we've talked about how the story the world is going to tell you over and over again is that you are your own and you belong to yourself. Now that sounds like a really nice story on the surface, but actually it leads to disaster. It sounds like it leads to freedom, but really it leads to slavery. But there's a better story, the story of the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus is king. And if Jesus is the king, there's a better story available to you. 500 years ago, there's some theologians in Germany that got together and they wrote what they called the Heidelberg Catechism, basically to teach believers the basics of their faith. And we've said that question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism says this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer that they wrote is that I am not my own, but belong with both body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. My only comfort in life and in death, your only comfort, our only comfort is that we are not our own, but we belong to Jesus. Can I get an amen? We can do that in here together, all right? 
And we've, we've been living together in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, right, where they drew that idea, where the Apostle Paul writes in verses 19 and 20, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. The story is not you are your own, you belong to yourself. It's that you're not your own, you belong to God. And we've said you belong to God in two ways. Number one, you belong to God through creation because he made you. And number two, you belong to God through redemption because he bought you, he redeemed you, he purchased you with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And so in light of the fact then that we belong to God, week one, we talked about honoring God with your body. Last week, we talked about honoring God with your money. And today we're gonna talk about honoring God with our time, honoring God with our time. Just right out of the gates here this morning, I wanna give you my sermon in a sentence. Here it is. Because you belong to God, Create the space to steward your season. We're talking about time. Because you belong to God, create the space to steward your season. Now, let's just break that down phrase by phrase. Number one, because you belong to God. That's our motivation. We're not trying to earn God's favor. He's already given us his favor. We are his. Time is his. So how do we use the time that he has entrusted to us? Phrase number two, because you belong to God, create the space. Let's camp out there for a little while. Create the space. What I'm saying is a lot of us need to fly a little slower so we don't shoot ourselves down. In 1967, there was an expert who gave a presentation to the United States Senate, and he was saying that how with all of the labor-saving technology that was being invented, this expert predicted that within just 20 years, Americans would only be working 32 weeks a year, that in those weeks, they'd only be working 22 hours a week, and that people would be retiring by the age of 40. Within 20 years of 1967, just because of all the labor-saving technology that was going to do all of the work for people, in fact, this expert predicted the number one problem that Americans would face with regard to their time was just what to do with all the extra time that they had left over. Now that we're a few decades removed from that, let's test this prediction, shall we? Is that your number one problem with regard to time, just what to do with all this extra time that you have laying around on your hands? How many of you retired by the age of 40? We're not there yet, are we? We're not there. I read about a survey this week of thousands of people that asked them, what is the biggest thing hindering you from loving God the way that you want to? And the number one answer was, I'm too busy. I'm not even preaching to anybody else today. I'm preaching to myself. I'm a type A guy. I'll work down my to-do list. And if I look at my own life, there's a whole lot of days where I'm just flying a little too fast. And my guess is I'm not alone. That a lot of us in the room, we've probably gotten sucked into the trap of saying that infamous little phrase, haven't we? I don't have time. Anybody ever said that before? And yet it's not quite true, is it? We all do have time that God has entrusted to us and we get to choose what we do with it. You have time for what you make time for. You and I have the same amount of time that Leonardo da Vinci and Abraham Lincoln and Albert Einstein and Mother Teresa and Jesus Christ himself had when he walked the roads of this earth. It's simply a matter of what we're gonna choose to do with these hours that God has entrusted to us. And man, if we look around, the world around us is flying at dizzying speed, isn't it? Everything's always going. And yet Paul says to us in Romans chapter 12 that as followers of Jesus, he says don't conform to the pattern of this world, that we should expect that we are gonna be people who live differently than everybody else because of our allegiance to King Jesus. And specifically in regards to our time, Paul says this in Ephesians 5. He says, be very careful then how you live. In other words, don't let life happen to you. Like let's be intentional about this. Be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days of your are evil. 
So not like, I'm too busy, I'm too much in a hurry, I can't do that, but rather making the most of every opportunity. Fly a little slower, create the space because you belong to God. Um, There's an author that I love named John Ortberg who writes about a time when he called up a friend of his to ask for some spiritual direction. And so he was talking to his friend on the phone and telling him about his pace of life and his job and his family and the stuff that was going on in his heart, the state of his soul. And John Ortberg, he asked his friend, he said, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy? And there was a long pause on the other end of the line. And finally, his friend said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John Oldberg said, okay, I've, I've written that down. You know, he's kind of impatient. He said, that's a good one. What else you got there? He had a lot of things to do. It's a long distance phone call. It's costing him some money. He wanted to cram as many nuggets of spiritual wisdom as he could into one conversation. And there was another long pause on the other end of the line. There is nothing else, his friend said. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Fly a little slower. Create the space, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now, thankfully, God, in his infinite wisdom and grace, he knows that we're not too good at this, at managing our time. And so God has actually hardwired a divine stop sign into the universe. It's called the Sabbath. Say Sabbath. Very good. Now, that's our English word. The Hebrew word for it, the Jews would say Shabbat. Say Shabbat. Very good. And that's just a Hebrew word that just means to stop or to cease. And the Sabbath, the Shabbat, was based all the way back in creation. You might remember way back in Genesis when God created the world. It took him six days to create everything. And then on day seven, Genesis 2 says this. It says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Now, do you think God was just like really tired and needed to take a nap? No, right? God rested to establish a precedent. Now think about this. You remember God created the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve, on day six. This means that day seven was their first full day of life on earth. And what did God have them do with their first full day of life on earth? He said, just Shabbat, rest, take it easy, fly a little slower. I got this. Man. And then he kind of hardwired that into the law for the Jewish people. The fourth of the Ten Commandments, you might remember, was remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. He wanted his people to follow his example of resting, of making space in their time. This is amazing. The Ten Commandments, right? He's got ten big rules for what it means to be the people who belong to God. And right next to things like do not murder, it's, hey, create space in your time for me. Fly a little slower, God cares about how we use our time. And I'd like to suggest that maybe, just maybe, God actually knew what he was doing. Um, Think about the way that we organize our time, that we mark our time. We mark our time, by and large, based on the cycles of the sun. If you think about, we have 24-hour days. We have 12 months in a year. We have 365 days in a year. Those are based on the cycles of the sun. But what about the seven-day week? The seven-day week has nothing to do with the cycles of the sun, does it? We literally only have a seven-day week because God told us to. And 250 years ago in the French Revolution over in France, they decided to do away with the seven-day week. They implemented a 10-day work week to try to squeeze more productivity out of their people. And their society caved in on itself. People mentally and emotionally imploded because human beings can't handle that pace. God actually made us to create space in our time for him. 
And, and in the Jewish mind, they actually marked their time a little bit differently than we do. When we think of a day, we start our day in the morning, right? And we end our day in the evening. The Jews did that backwards, though. In the Jewish mind, the beginning of the day was the evening, and the end of the day was the morning. And so that means that for the average Jewish family, they would begin each day as a family gathered around the dinner table. And then the next thing they would do to start their day was go to sleep, <laughs> Reminding themselves that God was God and they were not. They'd begin with rest. And only from there, they would end their day with work. I kind of like that. And they would do that for six days until on the seventh day, from Friday at dusk until Saturday at dusk, that was the Shabbat. That is the no work allowed zone. And that no work zone was not so that they could Netflix binge. It was so that they had space in their time to fulfill the two greatest commandments. You remember Jesus said that the two greatest commands of all were in Matthew chapter 22, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The most important thing, Jesus says, is love God. Second, though, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the Shabbat was to give people space in their time to love God and to love people. First, God wanted them to create space to love him, just to love him. There's a great story from the life of Jesus that kind of illustrates this. It's in Luke chapter 10. Jesus is with some of his friends. It says, and Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. So here's the scene. Jesus is at the house of his friends, Mary and Martha. Martha's uh, getting stuff ready. But Mary, Mary, she's with the other disciples. She's in the living room, sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him, loving him. But Martha, Luke says, Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. All right, so let's look at Martha here. We could just say, like, she's got some hurry in her life. She's flying a little too fast. She's a little worried. She's a little unsettled. And Jesus says, I love this. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him, loving him, fulfilling that first and greatest commandment. She made the space to love God, but Martha was so distracted that she missed out on the most important thing. Are you creating space in your life just to sit at Jesus' feet, just to listen to him? The most important thing of all. But Martha was distracted. I've heard it said that if the devil can't make you sin, he can at least make you busy. <laughs> John Ortberg says it like this. He says, for many of us, the danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It's that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we'll settle for a mediocre version of, well, we'll just skim our lives instead of actually living them. And man, I know that's true for me. I'm sure it is for you too. In those crazy busy seasons, you just kind of skim your way across the surface of your life, loving God with a little bit of our heart and a sliver of our soul and the leftover portions of our mind and an ounce or two of our strength because we're just distracted. And I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes the biggest distraction is this thing right here. Yeah? You know how many times the average iPhone user touches their phone 
in one day? You know, they track this stuff. The average iPhone user, pull, pull a number into your head. The average iPhone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day. 2,617 times. Now, by contrast, in Psalm 16, King David says this. King David says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. Now, I wish that I could honestly say that to you this morning. I wish I kept my eyes always on the Lord. And yet, as I look at my own life, if I'm just being honest, there's a lot of the time that I think my eyes are on my phone a lot more than they're on the Word. Can you imagine what kind of a man I would be if my mind engaged God's presence as much as my fingers engaged my phone? I mean, can you imagine what kind of person you would be if you drew your heart into loving God as many times as your eyes went to check on your phone? I mean, I'm not trying to guilt trip you into anything today. I'm just saying God has more available to us, and all of us can grow in this, in making space to love God with our time. So here's my challenge for you today. Just create the space to fly a little slower, to, to love God, to make a few minutes of silence every day, to spend time with him, to sit at his feet, to listen to him, to read God's word, to be in prayer, to carve out that no work allowed zone, to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life so that you can fulfill those two greatest commandments, to love God and to love people. Because it's really hard to love people when you're flying fast and in a hurry, isn't it? You know, it's... Uh, in me, when, when I'm justifying my busyness, a lot of the time I'll think, you know, but I got really important things to do right now. Can we just establish, though, that for just a second, nobody in history has had more important work to do than Jesus? Can we just establish that? And yet Jesus lived a totally unhurried life. Can you imagine Jesus in this conversation here in Luke chapter 10 as Martha comes to tell him her story and Jesus is kind of uh -huh, half listening, half texting? I have a hard time imagining that, don't you? And yet, man, I know for me, and maybe you've had this too, that there's these times, right, when like somebody will come up and they're talking to you and you got somewhere to be and you really need to be there and you're running a little bit late, but you don't want to be a total jerk and you don't want to be rude, so you're trying to listen to this person, but you're also kind of trying to help them along a little bit. So as they're talking, you're going, uh-huh, 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 and you're nodding, so they'll keep talking and talk a little faster, uh-huh, uh-huh. Some of you are doing it to me right now. <laughs> and Jesus doesn't do that to us, does he? One theologian called Jesus the three-mile-an-hour God because that's the average walking pace of a human. That Jesus is not a God in a hurry God. He's a God who's a three-mile-an-hour God who chose to come down and take on flesh and walk at the pace of people because that's the pace of love. John Orberg said it like this. He said, the reason hurrying is so dangerous is because love and hurry are not compatible Love always takes time, and time is the one thing that hurried people don't have. So my challenge is because we belong to God, let's create the space to love, to love God, to love people. Let's go back to our sermon in a sentence, though. We got three parts. Number one, because you belong to God, create the space. But here we go. Let's land here. Because you belong to God, create the space to steward your season. Steward your season. What kind of season of life are you in right now? There's a lot of us in various different kinds of seasons. If you had to name your season of life right now, what name would you give it? Um, Solomon in the Bible, back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he writes about the different seasons that we go through in life. He says, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. There's a time to kill and a time to heal, 
a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away. There's a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak. There's a time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. So what season are you in right now? Now, One of the things I love about living in this particular season of history is that in this moment right now, for the first time in human history, we have six generations alive and active in the church at the same time. In this church, we have six generations here at once, in this room at once. Isn't this amazing? All the way from the, the greatest generation, they're called the traditionalists or the silent generation, born before 1945, all the way down to Generation Alpha, born after 2015. Six generations all in here at once. One of my favorite things about Plainfield Christian Church is our generational diversity. And I think having that kind of generationally diverse group, it comes with some amazing opportunities, and it also comes with some challenges, doesn't it? Of course it does, absolutely, um, because we're not going to cater to one generation over the other, right? That, that, that means there's going to be times when every generation in this church feels uncomfortable. We are going to make you feel uncomfortable at some point, I promise you, and that's okay. And there's going to be times as we gather as different generations, people in different seasons of life together that, to be honest, we're going to look at the way another generation does things and we're not going to understand it. We're going to think it's weird. And to be totally honest, we're going to think that the way we do it is better than the way they do it, right? And this has been tale as old as time. I read a quote this week uh, by one older guy who was talking about the younger generation. See if this sounds like a familiar critique. He says, the children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority, they show disrespect for elders, and they love chatter in the place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents. Amen and amen. <laughs> they chatter before company. They gobble up dainties at the table. They cross their legs and tyrannize their teachers. Now, some of that's familiar. We'd say, yeah, some of that's a valid critique, right? You know who said that quote? Socrates. 2,000 years ago, tale as old as time, isn't it? That the younger generation thinks the older generation's out of touch and they don't have a clue and the old folks think the young folks are disrespectful and have no idea how life actually works. This is how this goes. And when we come together and gather as a group of people across the generational spectrum, I can promise you there will be times when we get under your skin. So what are you gonna do? Um, have you heard the one about the guy who got bit by a dog and found out he had rabies? And so he's at the doctor's office, you know, right after he finds out he has rabies. And so he pulls out a piece of paper and he starts writing a list on the piece of paper. And the doctor sees him writing stuff down. And he says, oh, no, 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 you don't, you don't have to make a will. Rabies can be cured. And the guy said, oh, I'm not writing a will. I'm making a list of people to bite. <laughs> <laughs> now be honest with me. You've got the list, don't you? Yeah, you've got that list in your mind. We've got that list of people that we want to bite if we had the opportunity. You know, I've heard them called EGR people, extra grace required. And as we bring people with different opinions and ideas and experiences and preferences and different seasons of life together, there's going to be a lot of EGR moments where your flesh wants to bite. And so what are you going to do with EGR people? We could do what Jesus did for us, right? 
Romans chapter five, Paul says it like this. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners. Now, don't jump past that phrase too quickly. While we were still sinners, while we were still in rebellion against God, while we were only deserving of being bitten, while we were the most EGR people of all time, what did Jesus do? Christ died for us. He loved us. And this is what we get to do for each other, that as we come together, a diverse group of people that, man, I have no idea why those people would hang out with each other other than they both have Jesus as their king. And you are going to have the opportunity in this place to learn to love people who are not like you. And that's what makes us different from the world. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter five. He says it like this. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Like anybody can love people who love you back, right? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, he says, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's love like God has loved us. Practically, that means that in this place, when you bump up against some generational differences, when somebody kind of chafes against you, if there's a decision that's made or people acting in a way that you don't really uh, totally agree with, here's my challenge for you. Don't bite. Love. Ephesians chapter four, Paul says it like this. Let him give you the challenge. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. The fact that he has to tell us to bear with one another assumes that we're gonna chafe against each other. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Man, that's what I want. That's what I want. And yet even even beyond just bearing with each other, what if God has actually given us each other? What if the fact that you are not your own, you belong to, your, you belong to God, what if that means something even different? Because if you are not your own and you belong to God, that means you also belong to God's family, which this is the crazy thing about this. If you are not your own, that means you don't belong to yourself, but you do belong to each other. Do we actually belong to one another because we're part of the same body, the body of Christ? And so if that's true, then he has given us to each other these diverse seasons so that we can bear with one another, but also so we can help each other. Because I don't know what season you're in today, but I know that every season comes with some unique opportunities, but it also comes with some real challenges and some real questions. Every one of us, we have unanswered questions in our minds right now. And they're different in every season. I've heard it said before that in your teens, the question that you're asking is, who am I? And who am I becoming? It's that question of identity, right? And then you move in, in your 20s, you're asking, what will I do with my life? It's a question of purpose. Those are the questions I've been asking for the last few years. And then you move into your 30s and you're asking, okay, how do I manage my responsibilities? It's a question of prioritizing. How do I juggle all this? And then moving into your 40s, as you're kind of more settled in, you're thinking, okay, now how do I feel about the person that I've become? Am, am, am I liking who I'm becoming and what I'm doing? Is this really the direction I want my life to go? And then when you reach your 50s, you're asking, okay, have I reached my ceiling? Because you're dealing with these questions of disappointment. Is this all there is? Am I just chasing success or am I chasing significance? And then you move into your 60s and you're asking, where's my place? Because this younger generation is coming along now and they're starting to take the opportunities that I used to get. And yet I still feel like I can bring something to the table. So it's a question of mission. And then in your 70s, you're asking, how do I handle the sense of loss? It's a question of grieving because the loss has become more real and more frequent and more painful and then you move into your 80s and you think, well, does anybody even remember who I was? 
because the people who did aren't here anymore. And so it's a question of obscurity. What value does my life have now? And then you move into your 90s and you ask, how will I face the end? It's a question of legacy. And every one of those questions is really, really hard to answer. But what if God has given us each other to help us navigate and by his word and by his spirit and by his people. One of my prayers for our church has been Psalm 145. I love this. Where Psalm 145 says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I mean, what if that was true for us? What if like the young generation spoke to the old generation and vice versa and we spoke to each other and we were put alongside one another rubbing shoulders so that we could speak God's hope and truth and life and wisdom and love and peace to each other to help one another wade through those difficult questions of life. What if we could do that? What if we walked at the pace of love? I wanna just wrap up today by giving you three challenges, if that's okay, for the three big seasons in the room right now. I wanna challenge the young people, I wanna challenge the middle-aged people, I wanna challenge, yes, the old people, if that's all right, okay? Let me start with the young people. Young people, give me your ears, give me your eyes. God wants to use you. God wants to use you. And the story that the world is gonna tell you about this season is that you belong to yourself and that you are your own. So look inside, chase your dreams and follow your heart. But the story from King Jesus is that you are not your own. You were bought at a price, the price of his own blood. And because you belong to him, he has a mission for your life. And he wants to use you I mean, just look throughout the pages of scripture. You are not too young. Look at Jeremiah, look at Samuel, look at David, look at Mary. God wants to use you, but in order for God to use you, you first have to let him shape you. Now, Paul says this to his young friend, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter four. He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. Can you imagine, what if that was true for our church? What if in our church, the young people were the trendsetters for how to talk and how to live and how to love and how to believe and how to live a life of belonging to God in purity? Wouldn't that be amazing? And I believe it's possible. And yet, young people, if that's gonna be true, then you have to let your community shape your character. You gotta create the space to steward this season to be shaped by the godly people around you. You gotta get in a group. You gotta invite some older, wiser people into your life who've walked roads that you haven't walked. Take them out to lunch, buy them breakfast, a coffee, a coffee pepper them with questions, and then when they start to spit wisdom at you, just soak it up and listen, listen, listen. Now, let me talk to the middle-agers in the room. And I've had several people ask me today, so like, what's the dividing line between young and middle and old? I'm not wading into those waters, all right? <laughs> that is between you and the Lord. Um, <clears throat> but for my people who are self-aware, listen to me now for a moment, <laughs> middle-agers. <laughs> you know, a lot of your peers, you're gonna watch them in this season of your life, spending a whole lot of time and a whole lot of money chasing the fountain of youth. And maybe if you're even honest with yourself, you're looking at your life and you're a little disappointed because you, you're not where you thought you would be by now. And so if the story is that you are your own and you belong to yourself, then, then fine. Go embark on the pursuit of happiness until you find it. And you're going to watch a lot of your peers in these existential identity crises do crazy things to try to chase that fulfillment. But for you, if the story is that you are not your own and that you were bought at a price and you belong to God then that means this season of your life belongs to God too. And he wants to help you leverage even the middle years of your life for the good of his kingdom. And you're not just waiting around for the next season. 
Man, when I think of the middle years, I think of the 12 disciples, I think of the Apostle Paul, I think of Joshua the warrior and Lydia the businesswoman who leveraged the opportunities of the middle season of their life to pour into God's kingdom. Man, the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, the whole book is framed as the middle years passing wisdom to the younger years. Proverbs chapter one, verse eight says, listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. What if you, in your middle years, embraced the role of spiritual father and spiritual mother to pour wisdom into the lives of those who are coming behind you, to invite somebody just to tag along with you, to show them how to do what you know how to do, and to tell them stories, and to listen to them, and give them advice, and just love the heck out of them? What if you embraced the role of a spiritual father or mother in this season? And now I want to talk to my friends who are young at heart, if you know what I mean, right? The mature, seasoned ones. Can I say old? Am I allowed to say old? Can we do that? All right. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we read it earlier, says God's made everything beautiful in its time. I loved watching my grandma a few years ago when she stopped dyeing her hair and she just let it go gray. It's awesome. She's just embracing the season. And this season of old age... (laughs) may not be what you thought it would be. But God is not done with you. And you are not just sitting the bench on his team. Your days are not over. I mean, just look through scripture. Abraham was 75 years old when God called him to go. And Moses was 80 when God said, go to Egypt. And Sarah was 90 when she gave birth to Isaac. God gets some of his very best recruits from the geriatric ward, all right? He does. I read this week about a group of friends who did what a lot of folks do. They just sat at the donut shop at the same table week after week, sipping their coffee and solving all the world's problems. But then they realized that nobody was listening to all of their great answers and advice. And so they decided that uh, every Saturday in the summer, they're going to move their hangout spot from the coffee shop to the local farmer's market. And they've been doing this, and we have a picture here of it for it. They set up a sign. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) Old coots giving advice. At least they acknowledge it's bad advice, right? My my grandma used to say, it's free advice, but it's worth as much as it costs you, you know? And and they, they decided they'd do this just as a joke. And then to their shock, like somebody showed up and another person showed up. And, and now they are swamped. Long lines of young people wanting wisdom from some old coots every week. And as a kind of sort of young person, can I just say like, I need some old coots spitting wisdom into my life. Like, I need you. And I'm so thankful for those of you in this church who have embraced that season of your life to pour into those who are coming along behind you. This is Paul's vision for what the old age season of of your life is like. He says this in Titus chapter 2. Paul says, older men, I can see who you are by the tops of your head. Older men (laughs) are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance, He says, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, he says, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, to be subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. In your older years, if the story you believe is that you are your own and you belong to yourself, then it's totally fine to sit on your pile of money and to spend your time on your hobbies and to just live out the remainder of your days in peace because you've paid your dues and you've earned it. 
But if the story you believe is that you are not your own and you were bought at a price and you belong to God, then what if your whole life has just been building up to this season where you now have more wisdom than you've ever had? You've been walking with Jesus for decades and he's formed his character in you and so many of you are just oozing with the fruit of the spirit and you have more resources and experience and time than you've ever had in your life and what if God wants you to spend out the remainder of your days pouring all of that into the kingdom of God? What if you spent your days down on your knees in battle for the souls of the next generation? What if you adopted some young people in a family just to come be a part of your life? Man, I don't know what season of life you're in today, but I know that in every season, God cares deeply about the time that he has given us and how we use it. So what if we were the church that was just known for flying a little slower, for creating space to love God and to love people, to steward the season he's put us in because we belong to God? A, a few weeks ago, we were praying with our boys before bed, and Calvin, our three-year-old, uh, closed his prayer by saying, we love you, God. I hope you have a great day at your church. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> and uh, his older brother, Judah, who sees himself as the divinely ordained righteous defender of orthodoxy in the Proctor household, <clears throat> after Cal said amen, Judah said, God doesn't even have a church. <laughs> and Cal said, yes, he does. And that's my prayer for us, that yes, he does, that, that when God looks down at earth and he thinks about what he wants to do in the world, that he'd think, ha, ah, I have a church for that. And they're mine. And man, they're busy, but, but they fly a little slower. They, they make time for me. They, they walk at the pace of love and they love the people around them. And man, they're a crazy mixed up mess, a group of people with all kinds of different ideas and opinions, but they love each other because they're mine. And I'm gonna have a good day at my church. Let's pray. God, we are yours. This church is yours. These lives are yours. Every moment, every breath from our lungs, it's all yours. It's a gift. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we know how short and fleeting our lives are, and it's hard to keep that in our minds. We just, I know for me, I just can sometimes live as if I'm going to be here forever, and yet we know that your word tells us our lives are we are dust, that we're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And so we wanna use it well. And I don't know exactly all the seasons that my brothers and sisters are in here, but you do. Psalm 139 says that all the days ordained for us were written in your book before one of them came to be. The psalmist says, my times are in his hands. And so we just rest today in knowing that whatever season we're in, it belongs to you, we belong to you, this day is yours. And so our prayer, Father, is that you just help us to love one another well, help us to love you well with the time that you have given us. We wanna hear you, we wanna know you. It's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, amen, amen. If you would, grab your communion that you received when you walked in. And this is the moment we come to every week where we remember that we are not our own but that we were bought at a price and what a high, high price it was. The price was the body of Jesus nailed to the cross represented by this little piece of bread and the blood of Jesus spilled from his side represented by this little bit of juice. But of course, the reason we're gathered here today in hope and in joy, knowing that we can live this life for God is that when this life is over, that we're gonna meet him because he's risen and he's reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and one day he will return. And so I'm gonna give you a few moments now just to hold this in your hands, if you would. 
And as you do, I'm gonna give you a few moments just to reflect on the price that was paid so that you could belong to God. And would you just tell him thank you? And then I'll pray and we will receive after that both the body and the blood together. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.